You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Sydney Foreman. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, June 3rd, 2020. Later in the program, Sydney Foreman and myself talk to two core members of Black Lives Matter Bloomington. Also, Brayden Lentz reports on hidden coronavirus numbers at a Bloomington nursing home. But first, your local headlines. Indiana has reported 4,086 patients in nursing facilities who tested positive for the coronavirus. But are the numbers accurate? At the Golden Living Center in Bloomington, Braden Lentz explains how a surge in coronavirus cases is causing inaccuracies. For more on the story, we turn to WFHB correspondent Braden Lentz. Indiana nursing homes have seen higher numbers of COVID-19 cases in both staff and patients. According to a statewide total, Indiana has reported 4,086 positive tests and 876 deaths, including 461 new positive tests at nursing homes and an additional 144 additional deaths of nursing home residents. State Department of Health officials refused to release the number of coronavirus cases and deaths from individual nursing homes. In late May, Monroe County's Golden Living Nursing Facility had the highest surge in coronavirus cases. A report from May 22nd displayed out of all 126 residents, 13 tested positive for the virus. On May 23rd, the number of cases jumped to 45 among 124 residents. It was reported on Friday an additional 49 residents tested positive out of 119 living residents. 109 nursing home employees had tested positive for the virus. When reporting on Friday's number, The Golden Living Center patients were never included since Monroe County reported no positive COVID-19 tests or deaths. According to the Herald Times, when asked about the situation, a public relations officer for Indiana State Department of Health would not comment. State health officials told the HT that communicating among families and loved ones could be more difficult with nursing homes not equipped with social media to express the total number of cases and deaths. Quote, a similar lag can occur in reporting of deaths. ISDH is providing aggregate data for long-term care facilities that has directed facilities to communicate their COVID status with residents' families because that is the most efficient means of ensuring that timely communication occurs. End quote. This quote went out of proportion at Linton's Glenburg home, which saw a surge in COVID-19 cases and deaths earlier this week. The director of the facility reported that too much information was being spread on social media. She then decided to report her findings. Glenburn posts the number of positive cases and deaths daily on their Facebook page, updating their information daily. May 29th report from Jean Johnsmeyer reported no positive cases at the nursing home. 
three residents were hospitalized with the virus. She reported that 71 residents had recovered from the coronavirus. It is unknown why the patient population declined during the past week. It was not reported whether the facility sent residents home to the hospital or if they died from the virus. On the numbers, Golden Living Center Executive Director Elizabeth Price did not answer our request for comment. For WFHB, this is Braden Lentz. Pygmalion's Art Supplies carried art supplies in Bloomington for over 40 years. The long-standing local staple is now coming to a close. For more on the story, return to WFHB correspondent Katrine Bruner. After over 48 years of business, Pygmalion's Art Supplies is permanently closing June 30th, according to an Instagram post from the business. The post states the business is closing because the rent costs have become too much, and even though it is profitable, it is not enough to keep the store afloat. The store posted the news to the public and their supporters on their website and Instagram page Saturday, May 30th. They stated, quote, It is with despair that we are announcing that Pygmalion's Art Supplies will be permanently closing its doors. It's been an honor and pleasure to be a part of this wonderful community for more than 48 years. It is more than a building and more than a business, end quote. Owner Nancy Crenshaw stated in the post, quote, Personally, I have learned and grown a lot here. This place and the community that walk through the doors will always have a spot in my heart. We want to thank you for the memories, thank you for your loyalty, and thank you for being our neighbor, end quote. The projected date for closing is said to be June 30th, according to Crenshaw. And beginning Monday, June 1st, all merchandise will be 35% off, which may increase in the coming weeks. Customers are asked to socially distance from each other when possible and wear face masks in the store. Only six people will be allowed in the store at a time for safety. Hours are 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. The two loved cats that have lived at the store for years, Alice and Kiki, were announced to have been, quote, retired to wonderful homes and are adjusting and quite happy, end quote. For WFHB, I'm Katrine Bruner. The Hoosier Hills Food Bank announced in a press release that starting this Friday, they will be distributing food to anyone in need as part of their Fresh Friday in June initiative. In response to the increasing demand for food due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, the food bank will offer a combination of fresh and frozen dairy, meat, and produce to families and individuals every Friday in June. The Hoosier Hills Food Bank, which donates food to over 100 nonprofit organizations throughout Indiana, according to their website, has been receiving an increased amount of perishable food donations through federal COVID-19 relief programs, according to Executive Director and CEO Julio Alonzo. In the press release, Alonzo says that while most of the additional product will be distributed among nonprofit organizations, the food bank does, quote, have enough to offer it to the general public directly as well as provide them with another option for assistance with their food needs, end quote. The food will be available for pickup at the Hoosier Hills Food Bank on Bloomington's west side. As of right now, this program is planned to run through June only. However, the press release states that the program will be reevaluated at the end of June. In an email with WFHB, Alonzo clarified that two factors will affect whether the Fresh Friday program will continue. First, whether the food bank continues to receive large quantities of perishable donations. And second, whether there is a response from people accessing the program that merits its continuation. 
The food will be distributed via drive-thru pickup starting this Friday, and each Friday through June, from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. The Bloomington Redevelopment Commission discussed social distancing circles to be painted on the green space in front of the mill. Economic and Sustainable Development Director Alex Crowley proposed the circles during their June 2nd meeting. It's, it's, a, it's a way to get people outside uh, enjoying a park or something like that. And uh, but it, it has circles drawn on the grass where, you know, the circles are separated from each other. Um, so anyway, that the, the request was whether we would be open to allowing this to happen, even facilitating it in the green area. Um, outside of the mill. Crowley said the circles would provide safe distanced areas to be outside. Commission member Dave Walters said people would not stay in the circles. Outside the mill is public area and anybody in the public can be anywhere they wish. And if they're not going to practice social distancing, then who are we to say, oh, you got to stay within these circles. You know, just going downtown through the courthouse square the other evening, there were probably about 60 people out there around the Civil War monument. Now, how in the world they can do any social distancing is not going to happen. I think it's really back on to the individual to realize that they have a, a right and responsibility to do social distancing, to wear a mask, and to be conscious of others' needs. Walter said citizens must take their own responsibility to socially distance. Crowley said the circles are just for visual cues and will not be enforced. Commissioners approved the painted circles with Walter voting no. Kirkwood Avenue is scheduled to reopen on June 10th, seven weeks ahead of schedule. The project began on April 1st, representing brick pedestrian crosswalks and installing removable bollards to, quote, convert the city's landmark boulevard into a pedestrian-friendly plaza on occasion, end quote, according to a city press release. The bollards will be stored in three locations near Kirkwood when not in use. This week, Kirkwood will be milled and repaved. Stripping will be done this coming weekend and early next week. Now we hear from two core members of the Bloomington Black Lives Matter who wish to remain anonymous. In an interview with WFHB's Cade Young and Sydney Foreman about their upcoming virtual protest and their views on the nationwide protest of police brutality on people of color. First up, can you talk about the Black Against the Wall protest against state-sponsored violence during COVID-19 and beyond? Well, we were concerned about COVID-19 happening still and that we were, we were possibly going to be having a bigger outbreak happening. And so we wanted to do something virtually to not put people in physical jeopardy in that. One of the things that we notice a lot about uh, Bloomington is that perhaps we don't have the same sort of ills with the police that maybe Indianapolis does in terms of the violence level, um, but we still have bad arrest rates here, actually pretty horrible arrest rates. And so we wanted to talk about that connection to the violence um, that's, that's erupting in other cities from, from the police and connect it to those problems of racial profiling and um, the systemic racism that is the police structure. So our conversations this weekend are going to be sort of connecting the dots between all of the Black death that we've seen through COVID-19 
And every time there's a police, a state-sponsored murder via the police, you know, that that, how that adds into this generations of, uh, of neglect um, for care to the Black community. And um, COVID-19 sort of proves the theory that it wasn't until the federal government, and in particular Trump, realized that the Black community were the most affected that they wanted to start opening things up again. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> it's just, it's kind of continuing that conversation. Um, this process is going to be on June 6th at 3 p.m. on Facebook Live. And so what is this going to look like being via Facebook Live for everyone? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think everyone right now is figuring out how to adapt their modes of uh, communicating, of, of, every, of living um, to a new environment. But we have some people who, with some good experience, at uh, running this sort of event. So basically what we're gonna try to do is um, respond to the sorts of questions that um, Bloomington residents, the community has about what it, again, what it looks like to be an anti-racist activist under the current conditions that we have. Those conditions include being in the middle of a pandemic that makes it difficult for a lot of us to go outside, to leave our houses, to, um, you know, depending upon our, our particular uh, health concerns. Um, but also a situation where we are, you know, being targeted as we have for a long time, but for state violence, for lynchings. And we are asking for questions from the community so that if they want to, you know, ask us some things, if they have some things on their mind they want to talk about, we're taking those on the Facebook page and through our email, and we will incorporate them into the conversation. Is there any other option for those who maybe not are not on Facebook to join in on the protest? Um, it'll be recorded. And so uh, as basically as soon as it goes uh, live, after we're done going live, we'll have it up on our website and have it up on the, uh, it will go on the Facebook page, but it'll go on our website. Um, and pretty much anything that we do that is recorded is on our website right now. So we have past videos of past events that we've done all up on our um, website. Our website is a resource base for lots of good information. Um, now, I know you touched on this a bit, but I want to get into it a little more in terms of police overuse of their power. Um, like, what are you trying to signify in, in your protest? I, I think I think you are, are are kind of you know saying it right there is that police have been arguably since their inception um, used uh, by the state to harm uh, marginalized people specifically and intentionally black people um, certainly others are affected as well but we're seeing right now the the inheritance of police as a force for Again, as we saw in Minneapolis, lynching black people um, in public in front of cameras, they are used and have used their force to incite fear, um, to threaten violence, and to execute violence. I would hope that no one uh, w- would would celebrate that as as a thing that we ought to be, you know, um, supporting, paying for, acting in our name. And we're seeing the images that we're seeing from these protests mimic images from the 60s, uh, mimic images from, you know, 100 years ago. I mean, this is, it it is history repeating itself over and over again, and there's one common denominator within all of that. And um, I I don't know if um, I would use the word signifying um, as you did. I would say the thing we are bluntly and clearly stating is that 
Black Lives Matter and that they haven't mattered and that the police are some of the biggest perpetrators of murder and execution and lynching of Black people and have been for years. And you explained the importance of uh, public institutions needing to be guided by anti-racism rather than a race-neutral mindset. Ooh, that's a, hey, thank you. That's a good question. Um, and I, I really enjoy the way you phrased it as well. Um, that, that concept of race-neutral is I don't see race, I don't see color. That thing, that adage that happens is it erases my heritage, it erases my history, it erases my pain, it, it it erases the fact that um, I, I will be and currently are judged by the color of my skin and um, it does nothing to solve the problem. And so if we come at things from an anti-racist action, that means we are not only examining the, de the detriment it is to society for Black people, but we are um, examining how white people to this day benefit from our racist history and current racist actions and how we can remove that privilege while sharing in a more equitable, fair, free, open society. Um, the other way, this race-neutral concept doesn't get you there. It has been tried, it doesn't work. And so anti-racism is that full acknowledgement of harm and a full attempt at restitution, resolution, reparations, and revolutionary advancement. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that. And I think right now, kind of all over social media, there have been posts about saying how um, white people can use their privilege to further in the importance of what is going on. And so in what ways do you want to see this happening? And how can someone appropriately use that white privilege to share the importance of condemning systemic and institutional racism? There's no way to give you a comprehensive answer to that because there are so many ways that white folks can do that in an everyday, real-time situation. But I think the key thing is, is to be in fellowship with Black people and doing that reading and education, um, seeking that reading and education on anti-racism without having to say, hey, Black person, tell me the answer to this. Also, not everyone agrees. And so a lot of white folks also seem to get frustrated. Well, my other friend told me to do X and you're telling me to do Y. And, you know, I think it's important for, for people to to do a lot, to do their own work and to say, look, I've done some reading about how I can be most effective um, at, a, at an active protest. I've heard people saying I should try to get, get between black activists and the police. So when they go to a protest, they should then ask, you know, the people, so people who seem to be in charge or people who seem to be tuned in, hey, do you want me to go to the front to get between you and the police? Right. And so if you come in with some idea of what you should do, but are then still able to defer to black folks, experienced black folks, people who are in charge, acknowledge their leadership and their experience to, to do what is going to be useful in that moment. Just to piggyback off of that, that is that is key there, that that seems to be a passive thing. It seems to be something that is. Um, not the action item that many white people want to do. They see, they see neo-Nazis out there and they're committing action items, right? So they want to do something that is an action item as well. And while there are some things that involve taking action, the, the right action has to also be accompanied with right thinking. And in order to get right thinking, 
we have to educate ourselves and it should be followed up with an action, even if that's a simple action as, you know, actively voting for the black candidates that are on your ballot or actively not voting for someone who you know is problematic in areas of race. So in the recent protests, you hear calls to abolish the police force. Can you speak to that at all? So one thing that I've seen from a lot of folks up in Minneapolis, I'm, I'm from Minneapolis. And so one thing that happened um, was a lot of communities realized the police are not helping us. Right. The police for, for several days had been you know, hanging out at their precinct building, buildings, um, shooting tear gas and quote unquote less lethal ammunition at people assembled um, in front of their, their, their headquarters. But that wasn't actually helpful. And it certainly became it became clear how unhelpful that was as people were, were being threatened, attacked at their homes, right? Even further, when the police started rolling through and actively attacking people in their homes, you know, it, it's not hard to find video of people sitting out, sitting out on their porch, which was explicitly indicated as an allowable action under the curfew in Minneapolis, uh, being shot at. One of the things that started to emerge in Minneapolis was this notion that the police are not actually doing what we need to get done. And they started forming neighborhood defense groups spontaneously, just block by block, people would get together and say, you know, we, sh we should make sure no one comes and messes, you know, tries, tries to set our house on fire. Well, the police aren't going to stop it, but we can. And they got together and they set up the conditions of their working together. Okay, well, we're not going to have weapons. Uh, we're going to go out in shifts of two. We're going to go out during these hours. The point is that abolishing police is, again, a process. To just say, let's fire all the cops, uh, today and everything will be cool is nonsense. You know, it, it'll, it'll open an entirely different set of problems. We need to get good at uh, working with each other. We need to get good at figuring out how to do that kind of community defense on our own. You know, and again, some are more effective than others. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it does. That's why you, that's why it's a skill needs to be built, why you need expertise. But, you know, I have a buddy who, you know, spent three days um, out at night policing. Uh, they didn't. They didn't kill anyone. You know, <laughs> they they didn't shoot anyone. They didn't injure anyone. Uh, seems like they, you know, might have had a better track record than the cops. And and they protected what they needed to protect. Mm -hmm. um, the cops did none of those things. We're not talking about fire them all tomorrow and everything will be great. We're saying we need to develop the skills to not need them mm -hmm. to do these things on our own. In a in a practical way, there are these steps that actual police forces can take to um, change the nature of policing. And some of them include not having police officers that are from four or five counties away, um, having police officers actually live in the communities in which they live in, and doing things for fully diversifying police forces. So not just having two Black people on your force, but getting racial parity, getting gender parity, getting sexuality parity. And also removing guns from cops, removing these, these lethal weapons from their hands, taking away their militarized vehicles, taking away their military equipment, doing these sorts of things definitely move what we have now towards what Martin is talking about, which is community defense that get us, that get us a, you know, quote unquote, abolishing the police. Up next, your weekly consumer watchdog segment, Better Beware. Hosted and produced by Richard Fish.
Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Today I'm going to tell you a story. Once upon a time, like right now, this very minute, there was an investment advisor in Rochester, New York, named Christopher A. Paris. That's Paris spelled with two R's. He was arrested and charged last January with a massive securities fraud. Court papers charged that Paris and his cronies discovered an investment firm which was about to go belly up because it had lost its clients' money, but the clients didn't know it yet, and the firm still maintained a high level of trust. So Paris and his friends bought this company and, building on that trust, started aggressively selling investments in a bunch of corporations they had created. With names like Precipience Global Corporation, United RL Capital Services, and Middlebury Development Corporation. Sound impressive, don't they? But none of those companies actually did any business. For a while, they used new investment capital to pay interest to the earlier investors while putting most of the money in their pockets, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office in western New York. A classic Ponzi scheme. One of the partners, one Perry Santillo, joined the jet set, bought homes in several states, leased fancy cars, and even threw a party in Las Vegas where a band performed a song written about him. The song called him King Perry and contained lyrics like, $10,000 suit everywhere he rides, and pop the champagne in L.A., New York to Florida, buy another bottle just to spray it all over you. Mr. Santillo pleaded guilty to fraud last year in New York and Pennsylvania and could get more than 20 years in the slammer. These guys are charged with swindling almost a 1,000 victims out of over $115 million. But apparently that wasn't enough for Christopher Paris. Still on pretrial release for the Ponzi scheme when the coronavirus hit, he saw another golden opportunity. He set himself up as a broker for large orders of surgical masks, calling himself the Encore Health Group. And within weeks, he was raking in millions in orders. But even that wasn't enough. Last Friday, Mr. Paris was arrested again and charged with trying to sell the Veterans Administration $750 million worth of surgical masks and other protective equipment, none of which actually existed. Jerry Miles from the Homeland Security Investigation said, quote, he was trying to sell something he didn't even have. That's just outright blatant fraud, end quote. And Homeland Security has so far opened nearly 400 cases investigating what they're calling a wave of fraud related to the COVID-19 outbreak. Coronavirus fraud is mushrooming. Another government official said, quote, It's incredibly rampant and growing by the day. We're just scratching the surface, end quote. At least one may hope that Paris and his still-alleged accomplices will not live happily ever after. What can you do? Be aware and beware. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break.
You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Braden Lentz, Katrine Bruner, Jake Jacobson, and Sydney Foreman in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Sydney Foreman and myself. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Our executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent local news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast as well as other WFHB news programming online at wfhb.org. You too can be a part of our award-winning news program. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for Cool Solutions, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 